Part 3, Chapter 8 of The Uttermost Star. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Bryan Stewart. The Uttermost Star and Other Gleams of Fancy by Frank W. Borham. When the Tide Turns. There is always a vague sensation of sadness in watching the sunset. But the particular sunset of which I am now thinking was the last sunset of the year, and it had, therefore, a pathos of its own. It was a typical Australian midsummer evening. After tea, I had left the house for a quiet stroll, and lured on and on by the tempting twist of the torturous track, I had wandered farther than I had intended. I came suddenly to the riverside, and noticed that the tide was right out. Before commencing the return, I sat down on some heavy driftwood that the winter floods had flung into the shingly cove, and watched the violet and gold die out of the clouds over the mountain. When the last flicker of light had vanished, I rose to go. How silent it all was! The very river seemed asleep. Everything seemed wrapped in the stillness of death, for was not the old year dying? A water-rat leapt from the bank into the stream, and swung round and round, describing graceful little circles on the smooth surface of the water. At other times I had been impressed by the silence of its movements. But, breaking up that uncanny hush, the tiny creatures seemed strangely turbulent and noisy. The swimmer crept back to his home in the bank, and everything was quiet again. But I had not gone more than a hundred yards before I was again startled. Not far away, out on the murky waters, lay a cluster of old hulks and barges moored in the sluggish stream. The strange flutter and commotion suddenly disturbed these slumbering craft. Such a tossing and jostling and swinging and bumping. Such a rattling of chains and creaking of timbers and straining of cables. What could it mean? I soon saw. It was the new tide surging up the river, agitating the old barges and breaking their repose. It was both a parable and a rebuke. The old is always stirred to fresh life and activity at the advent of the new. Who is more excited than the grandparents when a new baby is born? I stood corrected. I had been lamenting the passing of the old year. I had forgotten that the house is hushed for a birth as well as for a death. The silence was the silence of eternity, the silence out of which new worlds rush into being. What cause had I for gloom? I was losing nothing. I was gaining everything. The heaving of the waters had opened my eyes. I was disillusioned. I felt that I must greet the unseen with a cheer, and went home with a smile of welcome for the new year. For the hubbub and the commotion out in the stream when the tide came surging in seemed symbolic of the eternal and pitiful feud between novelty and antiquity. I wonder if I can recall and record what it is that that surging water and drowsy craft said to each other as their quarrel broke the silence of that lovely summer's night. Get out of the way, cried the tide, as it pushed the old barges this way and that, and seemed to be laughing at their slow movements and obvious infirmity. Get out of the way! We can't have the whole place littered up by the things of a past generation and it jostled them rudely and irreverently against each other. Silly young tide, 
What good can it hope to do in the world, except by means of these old barges? Let it lift them gently, bear them patiently, and make it possible for them to visit creeks and inlets, which they could never enter at low water. These weather-beaten hulks, that the tide treats with such disdain, represent the one means placed at its disposal, by which it may render the world some real service, before it ebbs and goes again. Oh dear, oh dear, cry the sleepy old craft, what a nuisance it is. We were sleeping and so peacefully, and everything was so still that even the splash of the water rat startled us. And then there comes all this flutter and commotion. And anybody who caught the testy tones in which the old barges muttered this remonstrance could feel how deeply they resented the coming of the new tide. Silly old barges, for deep down in their dark and cavernous holds, there were lying bags and bales and casks and crates that could never reach their destination at low water. And the new tide, as it came rushing, swelling, surging in, represented the one chance they had of getting their cargoes into port. It is very sad and pitiful, this wrangle between the old barges and the new tide. It is always sad and pitiful and humiliating when we fail to recognise that the old and the new belong to each other, and that neither is complete without the other. It is the peculiar temptation of youth to treat the traditions of the past with impatience, and it is the special frailty of old people that they look with suspicion upon anything new. Youth always has its face to the future and worships the new. Age always has its face to the past and treasures the old. Now about all this, Jesus said a very striking thing, which I blush to confess that I never understood until yesterday. Every scribe, he said, who is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven, is like unto a man that is an householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. New things and old, mark you. Not a jumble of new things and old things all mixed together, like new wine and old bottles, but things that are, at one and the same time, both old and new. For no really good thing is either old or new. It is both. Bring me the most antique object you can find, and I will show you how startlingly new it is. Bring me the most newfangled idea that has come to light, and I will astonish you by revealing its hoary antiquity. The wise householder to whom our Lord referred was, it always seems to me, Mrs. Wildman of Maplethorpe. We all remember the passage in Lord Tennyson's Life of His Father, The Lariat. That lovely entry always fascinates me. It occurs in one of the poet's letters to his sweetheart, Emily Selwood. I am housed, he said, with an old friend of mine who, with his wife, is a perfectly honest Methodist. When I came, I asked her after the news, and she replied, Why, Mr. Tennyson, there is only one piece of news that I know, that Christ died for all men. And I said to her, That is old news, and good news, and new news, new and old. The good woman was so instructed unto the kingdom of God, that she brought forth out of her treasures things that are both new and old. The old is so new. What is the oldest thing of which you can think? Old as the hills, you say? Very well. And as the phrase falls from your lips, 
My thoughts fly back to the grand old mountain over whose towering head and massive shoulders I have watched the sun set only yesterday. The mountain, with its head in the clouds and its feet in the sea. How often have I wondered about its leafy tracks and wooded slopes. I can see it from my window as I write. Look at the scars up there on the summit, eloquent witnesses to wounds inflicted before our little race began. What cataclysmic changes the old mountain peak has seen. What titanic forces tore those slopes in ages long gone by. What storms and earthquakes and glaciers. See these huge gashes, these precipitous cliffs, these beetling crags, these jagged ridges, these scarped pinnacles, these piled and broken boulders. Bring a geologist, and he will tell you wondrous tales of ice ages and stone ages, of tertiary periods and post-tertiary periods, as he reads for you these stony records. Yes, there is antiquity with a vengeance, and yet, as I look out of my window morning by morning, it is not the antiquity, but the novelty of the mountain that startles me. We look out upon its pointed peaks when we rise, and flatter ourselves that, from its appearance, we can forecast the weather of the coming day. However that may be, one thing is certain. The mountain, like the divine mercy, is new every morning. It is as fresh as a dew on the grass. It is never twice the same. One day it is wrapped in angry storm clouds, majestic and terrible. The next, it is sullen and dismissal, gloomy and grey. Sometimes it appears blue and close at hand. Sometimes it looks brown and far away. Now it is gay and sunlit. Soon it will be snow-capped and glittering. And in winter it will wear a robe of radiant whiteness. But in any case, it is always fresh. Each time we say, Well, we never saw it quite like that before. And if we ascend its bushy slopes and cultivate its more intimate acquaintance, it is still the novelty of this antique mass that astonishes us. Like some corrigible coquette, the old mountain seems to take endless pains to renew its youth. It is true that here and there, in falling trees and fading grasses, there are signs of decay. But beside the prostrate blue gum are a hundred supple young saplings, and the faded fern is already almost hidden by a dozen fresh young fronds. And so the mountainside seems always to be wearing a fresh garb. Just look here, cries one child as she rushes back excitedly from her rambles. And see what I found, exclaims another. The mountain bewilders and embarrasses us by its very wealth of novelties, so new is the old. And how ancient is the new? What is the newest thing of what she can think? A baby just born? When does a baby begin to be born? A baby is a very antique affair. Four generations right away back to Adam slumber in this little child of yours. This newborn babe is about the oldest thing living. It is the natural emblem of antiquity. Sir Oliver Lodge, in a recent article, has shown how old our startling modern inventions really are. It is a simple matter of movement, he says. A man takes six old things and puts them in a fresh relationship to each other, and then calls the result a new invention. Volta, for example, took zinc, which is as old as the hills, and copper, which is as old as the hills, and acid, 
which is as old as the hills, and the three put together proved a sensation in epic-making invention. What was there new about it? It was literally as old as the planet, and it was so new that it changed the face of the modern world, revolutionising all our commerce and turning our industries into new channels. Yes, all these things are wonderfully new, and all these things are wonderfully old. Antiquity and novelty are twin sisters. Yes, they are twin sisters, and as is so often the case with twin sisters, they grow into each other's ways and become interdependent. They need each other, and we need them both. If we add the new without the old, we should be instantly reduced to imbecility. I can tell the difference between chalk and cheese, because old experiences of chalk and cheese come to my aid. I recognise a tree as a tree, and a man as a man, because all the trees and all the men from out of my past rise up to help me. A newborn baby is in such a helpless condition of mental vivacity simply because he is so pitifully pastless. He has no chalk and cheese, no men and no trees, but which he can test and compare the bewildering objects that swim into his vision. Similarly, if we had the old without the new, we should be reduced to mental stagnation and spiritual paralysis. No man can live on old experiences. I need new mercies every morning, just as much as I need new meals. I need new visions, new ideals, new unfoldings of the Father's face, new applications of the Saviour's blood, new illuminations of the Heavenly Spirit. Even though I move along the old routine, teaching the same old class, or preaching from the same old pulpit, I need new throbbings and pulsations of spiritual power. Listen to the water mill or the lifelong day, how the clicking of the wheels wears the hours away. Languidly the autumn winds stir the greenwood leaves, from the hills the reapers sing, binding up their sheaves, and a proverb over my mind like a spell is cast, the mill will never grind with the water that is past. However old the mill may be, the stream that turns it must be newer than the newest sensation. End of Part 3, Chapter 8 End of The Uttermost Star and Other Gleams of Fancy by Frank W. Borham <laughs>